Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this half hour. And uh, I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Indiana. Uh, this is kind of part two to a podcast that uh, I brought up a subject that I, I didn't want to continue on. I wanted to make it into another podcast. You might hear some noise in this one. I didn't mention it in the, in the first part of this podcast. Uh, but in this podcast, I want to let you know that I am driving. Um, I want to do this podcast. While this stuff is so fresh in my mind about the meetings that I'm having, um, I'm right now we're on um, uh, not really a tour, but um, going around from place to place doing some filming for our Back to Jerusalem Bible Study Series. And at the moment, I'm driving, uh, making my way to Indianapolis, where I'm going to be flying down to uh, Miami. I have an amazing opportunity in a couple days to meet with an author who uh, has written a book that has really been transformative for me. Uh, It's called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. If you've never read it before, I encourage you to read it because it really is an amazing book. Uh, It's it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Printed, I believe, in the early 1980s, 1981, somewhere around that time frame. Um, he's more well known for his other book called *The Peace Child*, uh, an amazing uh, story. Uh, I believe it was written in the 1970s about when he was a missionary. Don Richardson was a missionary with his family among a uh, headhunter tribe, um, and he was able to find the gospel in a practice that they had where they would um, give up their son from one of their tribes to another tribe to be offered as the peace child and that the gospel was displayed to them as God was giving his son to us and uh, to transgress against that would be a horrible thing in their culture. So he found this bridge, this identifier in their culture um, that showed that uh, he could share the gospel together with them. Really powerful. If you've never picked up these books before, go onto Amazon, give them a look-see, maybe uh, uh, buy them for your Kindle or iPad, or even get the real thing shipped to your address. Uh, We we would love to assist with that if... if, um, if you need help getting the book, just call to our office. We're pretty flex. <laughs> we will, and the best way is just go to Amazon. We don't carry the books, by the way. We don't make anything from the books. We we're not advertising the books for our own purposes at all. They're just amazing books. But um, uh, when Don Richardson writes about eternity in their hearts, um, he brings up also uh, the gospel, even in the Chinese world. And the Chinese history. And uh, over this last week, I was down in Dallas um, at a, a Dallas Jewish Messianic Synagogue um, that I would highly recommend that you go and visit if you're ever in Dallas. Uh, you got a, a Friday evening or a Saturday morning available. Look them up on the internet, get the times, drive. They're right there in the heart of Dallas, and uh, it's a beautiful campus beautiful facilities, really warm people. Um, there's a, a wonderful lady um, that runs the place. Her name is Shannon. She's really wonderful, uh, 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 kind-hearted, could not find a sweeter representative for their synagogue. She's just a beautiful lady. Um, and tell her that Eugene from Back to Jerusalem sent you. Just a heart of gold. And she allowed us and took us around to do some filming for Back to Jerusalem. Um, 
uh, just basically we had complete freedom to go and use their facility as a backdrop for some of the recordings that we were doing. And uh, while we were there, um, I was doing an interview with Miles Weiss. And if you haven't heard of Miles Weiss, he's a part of this Levet Ministries. Um, you can look him up online as well, Miles Weiss. Not a lot of people in the world named Miles. Um, Miles Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, I believe is how he spells his last name. Dear, dear brother, wonderful brother. Um, is um, He's Jewish, married to a... Um, a non-Jewish wife, um, and she is uh, she works together, serves together with him, and uh, they go around the world, and they're on TV and on different satellite channels around the world every day, sharing about what God is doing among the Jewish people and in Jerusalem and in Israel. Wonderful ministry, and um, when I started sharing with him about how God has blessed the Chinese with one of the longest and oldest histories in in all of the world. And I just started touching on some of the ways that you can find that related um, in their in the Chinese history. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what his initial rea- uh, uh, ideas were. You know, I could see that he was listening to me. But man, when I started to share about the evidence of God in the Jewish uh, or in the from the Jewish Torah in the Chinese culture, he was blown away. When when you think of uh, a Chinese, you don't think of Jews, you don't think of um, the Jewish people, you definitely don't think of the Torah. But laced in the Chinese language is the stories from the Jewish Torah. It is undeniably all throughout their languages, their language. I'm telling you right now, if you go and you, you can Google what I'm telling you. If you've never heard this before, put your seatbelt on. If you've never heard that the Jew, the, the Jewish stories of Genesis can be found in the Chinese language, Buckle up your seatbelt, baby, because this is going to be 30 minutes that is going to blow you away. I promise. Now, let's start. In the last podcast, if you did not listen to the last podcast, I I ask you to go back and, and, and listen to it. Um, and just um, when you get to the end, you'll, you'll hear where I start just a little bit. I didn't intend, by the way to talk about this, but the last podcast just kind of led me down that road. And so I want to go there and share a little bit more um, about the stories of Genesis in the Jewish language. I'm sorry, in the Chinese language. The example that I give, by the way, I'm doing this without notes, so forgive me if I get some things wrong. Like I said, I'm driving down the road. I'm, I'm too excited to wait till I get to my hotel room. I'm an impatient person. Uh, <laughs> I, I, half the stuff I do is not ever done right because I am, I have no patience at all. Zero, zero patience. I am the type of person that I barely tie my shoes when I go out the door. I, I don't like fussing with my hair. I like to go where I'm going as fast as I can get there. 
Uh, that's that's just how I, I like to roll. Um, and so with this excitement that I'm sharing right now, I don't even have the time to, or I do have the time, I don't have the patience, I should put it that way. I don't have the patience to go back to my hotel room, sit down at a laptop, and then you know go through this stuff more methodically. So what I'm doing is I'm just sharing from my heart um, things, seeds that have kind of been downloaded um, into me and I've got a Pentium 1 processor, so it hasn't really been updated. So forgive me if it comes out a little awkward. Forgive me if it comes out a little shotgun style. Forgive me if I'm not flowing, uh, you know, point to point in a, in a methodical way. Um, I might be a little bit difficult to follow from time to time. I apologize. I really do apologize to our listeners. Some of you have incredible patience. Uh, you're also going to hear road noise. Um, hopefully you don't hear a car crash because <laughs> that that would not be any fun. That would that would be an, an abrupt ending to this podcast. Um, but anyway, the Chinese language is one of the oldest languages that we have in the world today. It goes back before the pharaohs and the and the the, the ancient pyramids of Egypt. Um, it goes back to the very beginning of the Chinese language or the Chinese history. Now, much of what we know about Chinese history comes from an, a historian by the name of Sima Qian. Sima Qian um, is a uh, historian that lived a couple hundred years before Jesus Christ. And he writes about Huangdi. Huangdi lived about 2500 BC. That is 2500 years before the birth of Christ. That is about 4,500, more than 4,500 years ago. That's how far the, the just the recorded history of the Chinese goes. I mean, that, <laughs> that's a long time. Now, a lot of people may say this. Eugene, why are you trying to push religion onto the Chinese? Why are you trying to push your Western ideas of Christianity onto the Chinese? Let the, they have their own religion. They are peaceful, loving people. Let them be. Let them alone. I'm sorry, but that's that's a lie from the pits of hell. They, the history of our God, Jehovah Jireh, goes back to every people group, every culture. If you can trace it back far enough, will lead you back to. Mount Ararat to the place where Noah's Ark landed where the three sons came out and repopulated the earth if we can trace back history far enough we can find God's fingerprints all over that culture and history if we can trace back history far enough we can find the DNA of monotheism all around now some of the things that I'm going to say might be a little suspicious in and of themselves, by themselves, but I am not going to share with you a theory based on one piece of evidence. Today, let's imagine you're in a courtroom and you're looking at evidence. Now, the evidence that I'm going to show you is to recreate a crime scene. My case is not going to be built upon one piece of evidence for the recreation, the recreation of this crime scene. Instead, what I'm going to share with you is many different pieces of evidence that string together what I believe a very strong case 
a very coherent story, a very good recreation of history, which actually is very plainly told in the book of Genesis. First piece of evidence I gave in the first podcast. If you didn't listen to the podcast, I apologize. I'm not going to go into detail, but the very first word for boat that we find in the Bible is ark. When we look up the Chinese word for boat, we have a vessel. It's a Chinese character. And Chinese characters, by the way, um, uh, go back to you know 2,500 years ago, and they tell a story. They are a character that is a picture, and that picture tells a story. It is a historical story. So unlike the English language that has 26 characters in the phonetic alphabet that makes sounds... And those sounds make words, and those words have meaning for us. The Chinese language does not work for that. For instance, think about this. They cannot make sounds for new words, so they find characters that sound closely, that are closely aligned. So tell me what I'm saying when I say this. Jijaga. Jijaga. This is the Chinese word for Chicago. Jijaga. So they can't say Chicago, so they find the Chinese characters for Jijago. The other one is New Year. New Year. New York. See if you can guess this one. Losinji. Losinji. That one may be a little bit easier for some of you. Miles Weiss actually was very good, the uh, uh, Jewish uh, messianic rabbi that I was telling you about. Um, he got it, He got that one pretty pretty good, nailed it right on. Los is actually Los Angeles. So what they do is they have characters um, that sound like the words that they're trying to explain, but they're not very close. Now, the Chinese worship um, a god, or their ancient history is for a god by the name of Shangdi. The Chinese worshipped... Now, when you think, when people say, you know, you why go to China trying to push on the Western religion. Well, my friends, let me make this argument. <clears throat> the Chinese are not Buddhists, Taoists, or Confucianists by history. That's right. Now, a lot of people think that to be Chinese, you must be Buddhist, you must be Taoist, or you must be Confucianist. No, that's not true. Because those religions only go back to the 5th and 6th century BC. But the Chinese history goes back 2,500 BC. So what were they doing for 2,000 years? Who were they praying to for 2,000 years? What religion did they practice for 2,000 years? Well, prior to being Buddhists, prior to being Taoists, prior to being Confucianists, they worshiped a god by the name of Shangdi. Shangdi is considered to be the Chinese equivalent of Shaddai. That is the word that they use for Shaddai, as in El Shaddai, as in Jehovah, as in the God of the Old Testament, as in the Jewish tribal God that created all things. Now let's look at some characteristics, the Chinese characteristics of Shangdi. We know a little bit about Shangdi because the very first emperor, 
Huangdi or the Yellow Emperor gave sacrifices on uh, Taishan, which is a holy mountain in Shandong province, on the Yellow River, which is the River of Sorrows or the birth of the Chinese people, the Chinese race, the Han people, I should say, um, were born, you know, kind of in that basin area of the Yellow River. Um, and there you have uh, Taishan, which is a mountain in Shandong province, very close to the border of Hunan province, where Brother Yun, the heavenly man, is from. When he worshipped Shangdi, he acknowledged during every year they would have a border sacrifice. And the border sacrifice was to Shangdi. And the border sacrifice to Shangdi was Shangdi, from the border sacrifice and from the Chinese historical writings, we know that Shangdi created all things. That before the two planets rotated, or the five planets in the in the two stars, meaning the sun and the moon, before the five planets and the the two stars were created, there was darkness. And Shangdi created all things. And Tian and Shangdi are not two gods, but the same name are the two names for the same god. Sound like anything that you've heard before from Jewish writings? Maybe Genesis 1 1 and 1 2? Maybe? Kind of? A little bit? That in the beginning there was darkness and the earth was with, was void and that there was no sun, there was no light and God said let there be light that whole creation story yeah that one yeah almost identical to the border sacrifice that the Chinese gave Shangdi when you go to Beijing raise your hands if you've ever been to Beijing I can't see you, <laughs> so if you've raised your hands or you're nodding your head, um, if you haven't been to Beijing, just take my word for it. If you don't believe me, um, the Chinese would love it if you bought a ticket and you flew to Beijing and you did a tour there. But right down the middle of Beijing, you have a perfect line. It's called the Dragon Line. runs north and south. It is, it is perfect. goes up and down, north and south. Um, this line that runs north and south is called the Dragon Line. It is on this line that you have Mao Zedong's tomb, you have Tiananmen, which Tiananmen Square, and you have um, uh, the Forbidden City, you have the Bird's Nest, you know, the new place that was built because of the Olympics, and then you have um, um, Tiantan, the Temple of Heaven. The Temple of Heaven is the second most visited um, temple, or I'm sorry, the second most visited site in all of Beijing. And it is the largest uh, altar in the world. So you have the largest altar in the world that is in existence today right there on that north-south line in Beijing. And there you have the Temple of Heaven where they, the, the Chinese would worship their god. Who was that god? Shangdi the God of heaven, the creator of all. Let me challenge you. Let me give you this challenge. Go around to the different temples in China and see what you see. You know, Chinese love temples. Uh, if you're in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore, China, you'll see that they burn incense, uh, they have like little altars at their desks. Usually they have the different gods, the god of war, 
the gods to protect them. They look, you know, very evil, angry, menacing. <laughs> the uh, the god of fertility, the goddess of fertility, I should say. Um, I don't know how she's to be fertile <laughs> or to promote fertility because I just one look at her uh, does the opposite for me. Uh, I'm not even thinking anything about along the lines of fertility when when I'm looking at her. Um, but let me let me say this: go around and look at all the different temples. Draw a picture of the different gods that you see in China. Everywhere you go, you'll see you know different faces, different gods, different goddesses. Lots of Buddhas. Lots of in in Hong Kong, we have you know these massive Buddhist these massive Buddhist um, icons, especially you know in in Hong Kong. If you if you take the um, the, the they have these uh, lifts. That you can take kind of like this, um, this almost like a ski lift that goes around uh, Lantau Island, and it will take you to the Big Buddha um, there in Hong Kong. Um, draw a picture. Now do this. Go to Beijing. Go to Tantan or the Temple of Heaven, and draw the picture of that god. Draw a picture of Shangdi. Tell me, according to the Chinese history, what Shangdi looks like. Do you know what you find? Nothing. The most prominent temple in all of China, the Temple of Heaven, there is no image of Shangdi. That's right. Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make a graven image. There's no images. There's no image of any God. Coincidence? Maybe. But another piece of evidence. Shangdi related to Shaddai. The temple of heaven. Um, you don't have uh, you, you, you don't have any picture of God. The other thing that you find that I find interesting about the temple of heaven, when you look at the main temple, what significance, if you're looking at a, a picture of it on the internet, or even if you're not, I will tell you, don't worry. But there's one characteristic that stands out to me more so than anything else. There's three main sections. There's a triune characteristic to that temple. There is a, um, a, a, a trinity of that temple that I find fascinating. Maybe you'll see it as a coincidence. I don't. It's also separated into three different parts. There's a triunity there. The, the main altar at the very beginning of the temple of heaven has three levels. A triunity there. I'm not even going to get into the characters. You know what? This is going to have to be a three-part Series. I'm sorry to do this to you. If some of you that might have wanted, you might have wanted to hear about the characters. Um, I'm going to get into those, but there's so much richness to the to the 4,500 years, almost 5,000 years of history that we have because the Chinese history stretches so far back to the the um, the days when uh, mankind split off from the Tower of Babel. Is it possible? That Huangdi knew Shemhem or Jepeth, 
the three sons of Noah? If not, would he have not heard of the stories from the very beginning? I mean, think about this. Um, uh, Jonah, not Jonah, I'm sorry, Noah, Noah's father was still alive when Adam was still on the earth. Noah's father was still alive when Adam was still alive. So Adam would have had access to all of this information. His sons would have had access to all of this information. This would have been, you know, because people lived for um, much longer during this, during these times, during those days, the people lived to be much, much older. And so there is a, um, there is a, um, a continuation of history um, that continues on from generation to generation that would have been made available to the people of Noah's age, Noah's sons, Noah's children. So if there would have been any chance for Huang Di to be a part of that migration that left from Babel and migrated eastward to China. Don't you think that that would have played a major part in the development of their language? If their language was was characters that told stories, don't you think that when they write about a boat that it makes sense that you have eight people on a vessel for the word boat? Uh, you know, they also have, there's a very famous boat that is uh, considered to be the, the birth of, of mankind called the Celestial Eight that are on this boat. Um, that's also very significant uh, for the, you know, the Celestial Eight that are on this boat. Um, so much richness there in the history. Now, now, now check this out. When you go to the Temple of Heaven there in Beijing, the, the temple was built so that once a year, you had this Melchizedek figure in Chinese history that was the emperor. He was the link between God and man. And every year, once a year, he would have the border sacrifice to Shangdi. And the border sacrifice was to ask for forgiveness to Shangdi on behalf of the people. Now the emperor would sacrifice and then go through these gates that are called the gates of hell. And on the other side of the gates of hell, it's called the gates of hell because no live animal would come back through those gates. After you go through the gates of hell, from there, the, the, um, the emperor would fast and pray for three days. Fasting women, human contact, food and water. And on the third day, he would go and make the sacrifice and, and the offering and the prayer. In case you didn't catch that, let me just say that again. On the third day, he would rise and go and give his offering to Shaddai, Shangdi. Coincidence? Now we're getting into a territory where the evidence is building a case. Where there's several things that are prophetic as well as historical. And we haven't even got into the good stuff, the characters. Um, one character, let me just let me just give a teaser on this one. This is a prophetic character, so it doesn't really tell the story, but it is so descriptive. The word in Chinese for righteousness is yi. 
do you know what the Chinese characters are? There's two characters uh, for uh, righteous. There's two different characters that can be used for righteousness. The one character is broken down into two parts. Get this. This is this is great. A lamb over me. You have a character for the lamb, and the lamb is set over me. That means righteousness. Doesn't that paint a picture of Jesus over us? We have righteousness as mankind, not because we are righteous, not because something that we have done, but because the Lamb of God has taken my place. A Lamb over me. Now, if you don't have goosebumps yet, just wait. Check this one out. This one is good. Or I think it's good. The other character in Chinese for righteousness is a cross. Make a cross. Turn it sideways so that you have an X. And then a little drop in the middle. Signifying a drop of blood. A drop of blood on the cross for righteousness. (laughs) That's good stuff. That's good stuff right there. I hope that you have learned something by um, listening to this podcast. My, my hope is that you know that you can come back and we can share things that are taking place, but not just um, daily updates from the field, but also how amazing God is in the Chinese culture. Because it's not just Chinese culture, it's every culture really. But the Chinese culture just goes back so far that... There are so many elements within the Chinese language that says, you know what? I'm not pushing a religion of Western Christianity on you or on this country of China. They were not originally Buddhist, Taoist, or Confucianists. They were followers of the one true God. The enemy has stolen that from them. They have a rich heritage. And when we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to China, we are not pushing on something onto them that uh, is foreign to them. No, we are bringing it back to their roots, bringing the Chinese back to their very roots of serving and praising Jehovah Jireh. I have so much more to bring to you. Uh, When we get into the Chinese characters, that's going to be in part three. I thought that I was going to do this in the first podcast. Now I'm going to do it in the third podcast. This is part two of at least a three-part series. I don't want to speak prematurely, but that's where we're at. I have just arrived at my destination where I'm driving to. Thank you so much for joining us at Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Indiana. God bless you guys.